Welcome to the Paragold Podcast. This is Jared Pickney, and I'm joined today by Cody Brown. Cody, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. We um, we do go way back. Yeah. We've been in the music scene some. We have. We have uh, grad breakfasts at Batten's. We have done we're just that. talking about. Yeah. Um, but we haven't talked in a while. Yeah. I feel it, like a lot has happened since we last spoke. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the, the major highlights are uh, I have far less hair. <laughs> uh, we've moved around a lot, but yeah, it's been a long time, man. I haven't got to go to Paragold near as often uh, until more recently, and, and now I'm back here all the time, I feel like, which is a plus. I like being back home. So tell us uh, a little bit about your story. I mean, I'm not even really familiar with it, so I'm, obviously you're born and raised here in Paragold, yep. but then you left, so just take yeah. us on that journey, man. So yeah, uh, I've had family here for, for years. My mom and dad um, I, were like what I like to think of staples in the community. My mom's been a teacher in Paragold. For coming up on 30 years, my dad was Bobby from Big Star, now Hayes, until he retired uh, a few years ago. Uh, and I feel like if, if you went to produce at Hayes, you knew my dad, yeah. uh, which is an iconic thing. But yeah, I grew up here zero to 18. It's amazing the role that Hayes has had on our community because we've lit, what are we, Josh Agee, and then Allison Heston, there was somebody else in that too, like... And they're like, yeah, I used to work at Hayes. And it's like yeah. some of those foundational, like influential leaders in our mm-hmm. In our city have come through like the Hayes farm system. It's funny, you know. You figure I would have worked there because my dad worked there the whole time. Um, I didn't because they they did they had a policy where they wouldn't hire you if you kept facial hair. Oh, and uh, you I were was not parting with your facial hair. No, um, no, it was not happening as a teenager. When did you, could you grow a beard ever since you were a teenager? Yeah, I mean, it started coming in pretty thick at like fifteen. Um, wow. And, and yeah, yeah, but see, you pay the price, right? I started losing the hair on the top of my head at like it nineteen. It pulled all the energy. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, it just pulled away. Um, but yeah, um, I can remember the in teenage years back in music scene stuff. I did have long hair while I could, and uh, at one point in time, it was down way past my chin, um, and like I it could hit my shoulders in some spots. I think I remember that. Yeah, it was. Man. It was not. It was you know, it's not an aesthetic look that you should go for. Um, <laughs> the way I was doing it, at least. Uh, Who were your influences were there like some of the bands you were listening to that had yeah. beards oh man yeah i mean everybody everybody did it was just like i think it was partially how like kind of scruffy can you look to because i mean i i grew up and did the standard stuff right i was you know played football like you're supposed okay. to i didn't know I, that yeah it, there's nothing anything to note did you got a tech or parable i went to tech and okay like i can remember my senior year we sported a 23 man team and i still know some of my coaches 23 people total for senior high football in 5a is not enough yeah a lot and, of people were playing both ways i'm sure yeah and what that means is that even i could start um, <laughs> playing football at tech back then um but yeah and i was super into music though i grew up in a really musical family like okay. my grandparents were here you know both sides and my grandmother was a bluegrass musician and so at oh, the nice. age of like 12 i started getting involved my first instrument was an upright bass and i would come down to literally across the street we did picking in the park on saturdays every saturday from basically March until October, well, it was warm enough. Every single Saturday, my heart hot, we'd go down there, and it was like two to three hours of bluegrass, and not bluegrass. They they would mix in as many Merle Haggard songs as they could, <laughs> and so I played upright for them. Uh, and Brenda, who used to own uh, Terry's next door, was the other upright bass player. So awesome. we'd rotate, or we'd have two circles whenever I came down. That was the first instrument you learned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was it. Yeah. That what went. all can you play now? Uh, I play many things uh, and not that well is the main thing. Uh, but I, I mostly f- play guitar and bass, and I, I like to mess around with, with keyboards. I like to think I'm a collector more than a player most of the time. Okay. I have appreciation for history of instruments, and so I love finding old stuff and 
spending time to clean it up and restore it now. Yeah. It becomes a hobby. So you sort of playing in a band um, in high school. Yeah. Did you travel around? I'm I did so. after high school. So um, yeah. I, I thought, all right, well, the, the summer between high school and college, I was like, yep, I'm going to go figure out what it means to like tour. And at the time I had the ambition that like, oh, I was going to figure out how to do like pop acoustic stuff because it was popular. And so I did my first one was like six nights where I went through all of Western Arkansas. And I think we went into Oklahoma and Missouri and just did like six night six nights of sleeping on couches and playing tiny coffee shops. And yeah. then kept doing that for a few years during college. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, we did all over the Southeast. I say we, I would always con someone else into going with me. I was like, hey, you can open or you can headline. I don't care. Or uh, eventually when I started to think uh, bigger, I was like, all right, I'll bring somebody with me as like a backing singer to, to either play another instrument yeah. or, or sing along. And we did that though. It was a lot of fun. I think it was something like 30 states is how many states I got to play in. It's uh, nice. by the was time it I the Cody more. Brown band? It was just Cody Brown. And I'd show up um, generally trying to write really bad ripoffs of Steve Earle and Bob Dylan. Um, and, and that's where it ended up going. I still love both of those. Both those artists, man, they're some of the most prolific writers. And so I, I appreciated the singer-songwriter style. Were you able to make money doing that, like to kind of help pay your way through college? Or was it more <laughs> like... You know, the only claim was that I never lost money on, on like a tour, but it was because I lived so cheap. <laughs> You're breaking even. Um, yeah, that so was I the lived goal. so cheap. Um, it was the thing. And like we'd sell merch um, and, and you know, merch and a lot of times the venues would pay a little bit and then I'd find a way to stay for free on someone's couch. That's or nice. there were many nights that we, uh, like if I had a buddy with me, we'd sleep in, a, in the car in a Walmart parking lot. Totally did that. My parents, they were, they thought I was crazy, but they encouraged me to no end. Um, and yeah, we, I've, I've done that, uh, uh, sleeping in Walmart parking lots. And then you wake up the next day, you go pay 10 bucks for a truck stop shower. Uh, and you head to the next town. It was, Man. Yeah. What an was, adventure. It was an, an adventure is the good way to put it. I got, <laughs> I got some really good life experience out of it and met a lot of really nice people. What, how are you making money then? Uh, so throughout college, it just kind of depended 18, 19. Um, I worked summers at Monroe. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You had the, like the yeah, family dude. summer help program. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, I worked in the DC there most summers and then the rest of the year, um, I had a one day a month thing where I substitute teach and I played poker for a yeah. lot of my living in college, which is, uh, you were a good poker player. I am not good. See, you don't have to be good at things. You just have to find a situation where you might be slightly better than those around Man, you. I'm going to tweet is, that. And this is the, you never have to be good. Um, you just, you just have to be slightly better. And it was, what it was is there was a boom happening and you can remember it was first coming on TV at this time. And so, like, by the time I turned 21, it was booming. I'd go to Tunica, like, two or three nights a week, yeah. and I'd stay and play overnight and then drive back for school. Would you wear um, shades <laughs> or a cowboy hat? Or I'm, no? I'm, I am not cool enough to pull off any of that. Oh, okay. The only thing I picked up from an attire thing was uh, I started wearing watches because I saw the people that I thought looked most successful wore a watch, and so I started wearing a watch That's at that nice. age. That's nice. What's the most money you ever won playing poker? Uh, like, in a single night? Yeah, sure. I only played cash games, so I didn't really do the tournament thing where it's oh, okay. fancy. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, you know, somewhere in not five figures, but lower in okay. the upper range of that. Okay. So I've had some good times. Yeah, man. Yeah. Was, so you're playing poker, you're playing music. What was your uh, musical influences at the time? Like, who were you listening to? Because we were kind of in the music scene for a little bit, yeah. you know, uh, well, as well. School. And so we crossed 
path. In some yeah. Ways. Well, you were like a senior person since you're just a couple years older than me. I think it's two or three. I graduated in 01. Oh, so never mind. I graduated in 07. Okay. So like you were like, so your scene at the time was like what I wanted to grow up and be. Okay. That's where I was trying to get to because all of you who were kind of further into that, but I got into the, the punk stuff and post-hardcore is the big thing. Under Oath Ooh. was everyone's influence, oh, right? Oh, man, yeah. Um, and what was the name of that album? Something about, uh, God, what was it? It was, I don't know. It was like eight words long. Something about exit or reinvent. Yeah. I don't know. I don't remember, but it was really good. Do you know, Bill? Uh, they're only chasing safety. That's yeah, it. Something like that's that. Yeah. yeah. Only yeah. Chasing safety. Or that was the title of like, their, I, I just their remember track. so many band shirts. Um, like there's so many of those band shirts that everyone would constantly wear. And it was just trying to find the craziest ones that we could. Um, but yeah, that was the, the desire to tire, but I listened to a lot of them and then I don't know what happened. Like a, a, a switch flipped when I started going to college mm-hmm. and I At moved Belmont, to Nashville. Is that right? Yeah. So I went to Belmont, um, and I went there for a year and a half and I was still on the road a decent amount, but I was coming back here a lot too. I went to Belmont and met a lot of people and started doing folk music. Um, and Mets, man, there's so many talented people at that school. Oh, it man. gave me a ton of perspective on where my career pathing should eventually go. Cause I met so many people who are just like, yeah, I mean, it's like you're meeting the best experts at everything and they're 19. I'm like, how are you this good? Like, what are you, I mean, the, and some of them now are doing some crazy stuff. My roommate is still a live engineer. Um, uh, and he, he's done it for some pretty big artists and a guy that lived down the hall for me, um, was, did Wolfpack. Do you listen to them at all? Who? Wolfpack. I don't think I do. They're like a a funk style band, but they played Madison Square Garden and he was one of the live engineers for that recording. Yeah. Um, And so these people have like gone out and done crazy stuff. Um, And so I got some perspective. It's amazing how going to college can help you. Yeah, it can, like you said, it changes your perspective because you can grow up in a small town and we see it all the time with athletes, right? Like youth sports where it's like, my kid is going to go pro or at least get D1. And then you go to some bigger city and you're like, nope. Like it's, reality settles in like it is a big world out there and there are a lot of really 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 gifted people i got into the engineering side of it for a while and i got really connected to a local venue there and was working uh, nights while i was in school at a local venue sometimes too and i really like the live engineering side because you get to connect with all these bands you get to make like connections with people and then you get to be part of the show i mean yeah. I, was, I was i had a lot of fun with that I started as a stage hand and then eventually and just worked up to where they'd let me you know, turn the knobs. That's cool. So you realize, though, at that point, like you're probably not going to make a living being a professional artist. So eventually you made a turn. Where, where did you go next? Yeah. So um, I, I guess a year and a half into Belmont, I did some math and student loans. I don't know if anybody's aware of what those are. Um, I became <laughs> I'm very acutely much aware. aware of student loans and also how many of them I, were, I was acquiring. Um, and I came back to A-State because I still wanted to play music, and I was on the road quite a bit then. I was trying to do a couple tours every semester, basically, and if I was leaving school and paying that much, it wasn't going to work. So I came back to A-State, started doing that here, and just focused on my business management degree. Um, and I was fortunate. A-State was really flexible. Mm-hmm. I could schedule classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays and then work or do whatever else I wanted the rest of the time. So I could be gone Friday to Monday, and it was no problem. Had a lot of fun with that, and, uh, and that's when poker really started to heat up, too, and I was like, all right, cool. You know, I can go down on Tuesday night and come back Thursday morning if I want to go do that, whatever, you know, where I was able to go to Tunica at the time, which sounds crazy if I think about it all now, coming <laughs> back to it. But It's weird how when you look back on your life, um, you say, you know, it's crazy now that I see it. But, like, when you're in the middle of it, it's just like, it was, this is just what's happening. This was you know normal. Yeah, absolutely. I, I but then you can look back and you can be like, wow, you see all these, like, spots. That, like, I can't believe these things connected the way they did or whatever else. But at the time, it just feels very normal. 
Yeah, it was, I mean, it was interesting, but I ended up meeting really great people at ASU. And like, I found like a passion for entrepreneurship that I knew I had, but wasn't really there in some classes with some really good professors, um, met people who were really ambitious as well. And I just thought differently too. It's, it's amazing though, if you keep surrounding yourself with people who are a little bit different than you, how much you can kind of grow. Yeah. And I, I found that really great. Um, I, I met a professor literally while I was there who I've tried to model um, my eventual like career off of because mm. he was you know in his late 40s he had you know spent his time in the corporate world and gotten to a really high level and then he decided he wanted to teach and that's how he wanted Who to retire was it? do you remember his name i have it i, I have it written down i had to put you on the spot but there was a professor i just wonder you said he's a business degree yeah and so he was my strategic management professor yeah and he was the former president and ceo of marathon baylor corp okay and he lived in memphis but drove to asu two days a week yeah. because he was a yeah he had the ability to do that and he drove in two days a week and he taught these like a couple specific classes that he enjoyed teaching um and i can remember just learning a lot in that class he forced us to, to do like deep dives on a few different companies select one that we thought had the most potential for future growth and why we should invest in that company I chose Tesla. I did not invest. That was a terrible mistake. Um, but yeah, I feel like uh, those type of people uh, were really great. And then Faye Koshiara was another professor at the time that, um, you know, she just had a different perspective from working in the airlines world for a long time that I didn't hear from a lot of people in this area. And they were really influential in helping you think like, all right, well, it isn't just the standard path you have to go. You can choose a variety of different ways to find success, especially in because business is everywhere. You can go figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that. Yep. So eventually you graduated and then what, uh, what happened next? Where'd you get a job? And then, yeah. So my senior year of college, I started working for target and Jonesboro target. Okay. If you prefer, uh, um, I do prefer that. Uh, pinky's actually. up. Pinky's up's important. Pinky's um, up. And so, yeah, I started working there. Um, and then as I graduated, my wife and I were getting ready to get married. Um, and we were moving to Nashville and so they were transferring me there. Um, and so moved to Nashville into a tiny little two bedroom townhouse in Antioch because we literally couldn't afford to rent. Like buying a tiny two-bedroom townhouse was cheaper than renting, so it was a. It was like, all right, let's do some math. We could. I don't know how it worked out or how we ended up getting approved in any way, shape, or form, but they let us have this tiny little two-bedroom townhouse. I moved there in September of 2012, uh, and then I started working for Microsoft like three weeks after. Hmm. What'd you do for Microsoft? So I first started and joined, uh, they were doing this massive launch of retail stores. And you hear the Apple store, right? Mm-hmm. Microsoft was launching a huge slew of retail stores. And I'd worked for Target. So like, oh, cool, he's worked for Target management. He can come work for us in management. And I don't know how that really happened. They called me or sent me an email. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll interview. And it worked out well. Um, and then so I launched a store in Nashville. Um, and then six months later, they were like, hey, we're actually going to change direction. Um, we'd love for you to come and launch a store in St. Louis. I was like, great. Um, and I got into a learning role there where I was doing some design for learning um, across the region. Um, and like, how do we educate our customers on product? Because if you can remember at this time, if you're familiar with the product at all, we were launching all these touchscreen devices and 95% of the world still used Windows XP. Mm. Um, and so it was like, all right, well, how do we help customers? And then specifically business customers migrate, you know, 500 users to a new platform that's used completely differently. I got to, I got to help with a lot of the initial rollout with that. And it was a lot of fun. So you worked for Microsoft for how long? Uh, three years. Okay. And then is that when Amazon came calling? Yeah. So Microsoft had moved me to Dallas to launch another location. Okay. Um, and so then I was working in the business side of it and working on a technical team where I managed a pretty large team of technicians. Um, and we did a lot of business services. And so uh, I had worked in Dallas for about a year. Amazon contacted me and they're like, Hey, operations, you've led people, you can lead people in operations. And I had no idea 
what I was getting myself into. Uh, and then uh, Amazon called uh, and uh, ended up taking an operations manager role there. So I started running part of a building in Dallas, in South Dallas. Um, and then, what do you mean, sort of running a building? So I ran, uh, I ran the outbound operations side of a building in Dallas, which basically means like it, we have these large fulfillment centers. Mine was called a cross dock. And that's basically where we take a lot of freight from vendors or like UPS, and then we sort it and send it all over the U.S. to okay. a bunch of different sites. So it's basically like a filtering system uh-huh. for placement to make sure product is where it needs to be. Okay. And if you think about the outbound side, I put a lot of boxes on trucks. Okay. That's the, the, you know, yeah, yeah. it's the simplest thing is that I coordinated a team to put a lot of boxes on trucks yeah. as fast and how as big is that team that you were overseeing at that time? Uh, it started at around, I think my first team was around 200. And by the time I was transitioning to my, uh, the team I'm on now, was, I had grown to probably like 500 people okay. on that side. That's and a lot of moving parts then. Yeah. I had no idea what I was doing when I walked in. I can remember yeah. going, why am I here? I don't know about ops really. I, I can do, I, I can, I can manage metrics if you need me to do that. And then I, I knew people. Um, and that's what really mattered. Like it was nice. If I could go engage with people, find out what motivates them probably going to be okay. And I, I understood how to, how to read, you know, basically our little version of a, a balance sheet or metric sheet. And we learned it fast. It was a lot of fun. I mean, yeah. I enjoyed it. Like it was, it was good. I still support those leaders t- today. Now in my current role. What is your current role? So yeah. Um, the, the long winded title is I'm a senior manager of global talent development products. And basically what that means is, uh, the, the team I run supports our senior manager and executive level leaders in worldwide operations with the development resources they need to succeed. So like if you think about how do we help a leader be really successful as a general manager running a building of 3,000 mm-hmm. people, my team's responsible for that person's development. Um, and we run different programs uh, to kind of support them and a bunch of different other roles. So too. how big is your team now that works with you on that? Uh, so I have, it's six currently, um, and they sit, you know, I've got one person who sits in Europe and another person coming there, and then we have uh, uh, five in North America okay. and spread across. And so you're, is it basically the leadership development? Yeah, yeah. If you think of it, it's the same thing, right? Like I focus really on what skills, you know, help someone be successful in these type of roles. And so my team does the research to know that, and then we design programs and, and basically experiences for Like them. leadership development programs? Yeah, yeah. So like, that's what I really focus on now is like, how, you know, what critical factors help someone be successful at what they do? Um, what are you finding? Is there anything across the board? Um, there, I mean, there's stuff that's important, right? Like, you know, you care about you, the leadership principles at Amazon are like this big thing. There's 14 of them okay. that are super like critical to what we do. Um, and someday if I'm fact checked and I mess that number up, I apologize, Jeff sure. Bezos. Um, but, um, so the leadership principles are really kind of what it is, right? Like if you can earn trust with someone, mm-hmm. then it's, you know, that's a critical skill to be successful. You know, if you can focus on the talent development of your team and yourself, it's super successful in helping you grow. Um, and then, you know, if you're able to understand what helps drive and deliver results, if you know when to dive deep and when to stay at a high level as a senior leader, those things are important. So it's not, it's not you know, any simple or small thing or short thing. It's a wide variety of things that we kind of package together in a big experience. Yeah. What have you found makes some of the best leaders, just whether it's even growing up and working under leaders or now working alongside leaders or being a leader yourself? Um, yeah. What comes to mind? I know, obviously, this is the conversation. None of this is planned. It's fine, so yeah. I'm, I'm totally putting you on the spot with this. But yeah, when you think about some of the leaders that you worked for or worked with, or now that you see that you're working to develop, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's universal across the board, right? Like someone who demonstrates empathy is mm-hmm. extremely important. Um, you know, I, I I said this I think in like a, in a short little note I sent you before, but like. 
I feel like I've been given such an advantage because I had so many people who, you know, told me, you know, go get it. You know, they empowered me. So empowering others is extremely important, right? People want to have ownership of what they do. People want to, you know, feel connected to the result of what they're doing every day. And, and I think if you just connect people and let them see the, in, the end impact of what they do and you empower them and give them authority to go make a decision and, and trust them and then offer support whenever they need it, that's, that's really what it is, right? I mean, it's, it's about caring about them and, and then not just giving them a standard list of things to go do and a monotonous list of like just checking the boxes. It's about giving them the freedom to make good choices because you trust them. Sometimes it takes a time to build that trust, but, you know, uh, give them faith. Like faith's important. Like you got to believe that people are capable of things if you're going to put them in that position. Yeah, that's so good, man. Empathy and empowering others. Yeah. Yeah. Who would want to work for for that person. Right. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. And that's the big thing. I mean, and so, you know, that's what we try to do for everybody. I mean, yeah, it's what's helped me. Right. People just always said, you know, I, I, you, know you can do that. You know, my parents never said you can't do something. Mm-hmm. I was really fortunate to have parents who were open-minded when I proposed crazy ideas and still mm-hmm. do to this day. They're like, all right. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Were you the only child? Uh, kind of, I say kind of. I have a sister that is very much my sister, which is my half sister. Okay. Um, and so, uh, but she didn't live in the house with us most of the time. Uh, but yeah, Stephanie still lives here in town. We talk all the time. Yeah. Um, so, but I, I had a half sister, but I was the only person uh, in the house most of the time. So you had parents, man. I I love that. That whenever you would come, so you're a dreamer. Yeah. Right. And 100%. so they would come to you, which honestly I feel like is in most kids, and it gets beat out of them, mm-hmm. or they're kind of like told, like, no, 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 like, like. You've got to be successful, and this is what a successful person looks like. Think inside the box, right? Which is usually what's parents. Yeah. Like we're not trying to crush our kids' dreams. We just think dreamers are the ones who like end up getting like way lost out there in left field somewhere. But when you would go to your parents with a dream, some crazy idea, you didn't feel at all shut down. It was like the opposite of that. No, I mean, I, really, I, I don't know. I think it helps some if I had good ones. Uh, don't get me wrong. They, they would help me filter. Um, <laughs> But I can remember even like, a, you know, like whenever I was trying to figure out ways to sell CDs, like I used to go to school in high school with this extra backpack that was like an army surplus backpack mm-hmm. full of T-shirts and CDs for the bands we were in. Um, and like I would I would literally just hustle CDs and T-shirts in between classes where I could to try mm-hmm. and convince people that this is a good idea mm-hmm. and you should own this. Yeah. Um, and they were my mom was like, sure, yeah, <laughs> if you can do it, go ahead. Um, and that's kind of been the thing. Like if you can do it, go ahead. That's and really I think cool. that it creates eventually if you get enough confidence from that, sometimes, you know, you get that, you know, watch me attitude about it now, which is how I've ended up doing a bunch of different things where like, if anybody tells me I can't do something now, it's almost out of pure determination to figure out how to. That's um, really cool. Is that- I got so lucky that so many people supported along the way and were like, oh yeah, you can do that. You'll be fine. Or yeah, just give it a shot. And yeah. Then- yeah. Sometimes it's all someone needs, right? Yeah. It's just the, uh, yeah, the affirmation or kind of like the, yeah, go ahead, try it out. See, so you said that you kind of have this mentality of, man, you tell me I'm not going to do it. Like I'm going to try to find a way to get it done. And is that kind of just that mentality of like, man, here's an obstacle. And because it's an obstacle, I'm going to see if I can like get over it or I'm going to see if I can accomplish like, you know, whatever the challenge is, like you kind of rise to the occasion that there's some of that in you, it seems like. So is that what got you into running? Because I know that you're yeah. a pretty big runner, at least I know you were yeah, last year. Didn't I you st- run like a it's a 100-mile race or something? I did last year. Um, and, yeah, so basically, I mean, it's not necessarily the fact that you can't do it. It's like, oh, this doesn't seem possible, and that's just like, oh, i got to try and prove this wrong. Or if somebody yeah. else did it, I can do it. 
And I don't know if it's rising to the occasion more as like trying to run through the wall that's sitting in front of you. Uh, Cause I don't know if I'm good at climbing over it more so than just kind of gritting my teeth and going through. But yeah, last year, I, I mean, uh, I had done some 50 mile races uh, cause I moved to Seattle in 2018. My wife and I did um, cause my role moved me there. Um, and uh, or the first place we, we went to try and find friends cause we knew no one. Um, my wife found meetup groups that were running groups cause I ran um, and I'd just done like half marathon and marathon distances. And so she found these running groups for us to meet people. And I started meeting all these crazy people that run super long distance. And they were like, Oh yeah, we're going to run a 50 K. And I was like, I don't know what that is. Can you tell me? Yeah. And they're like, Oh yeah, we're going to run a 50 mile. And I was like, that sounds insane. Let's do it. Um, and then somebody was like, Oh, I don't think anybody from our group's going to run a hundred soon. You know, some of them already had, and I was like, I'll do it. And uh, yeah. And so we ended up there. Um, so how in the world did you get, like, if I remember correctly, you were like, so you said you played football, Yeah. but like, were you a runner? No, no, I no. Okay. I wasn't a runner five years ago. I guess it might've been about five years. You weren't a runner five years ago. No. So t- take me on that journey. Like yeah. from like the time you decide you're going to start running to eventually the hundred mile race. Jared, I'm sure you can empathize with this. I have a wife who is far more thoughtful and, and, and extremely intelligent than I am in general, right? And so she was like, hey, we should probably get healthier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... That sounds like a pretty good plan. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, she was like, hey, you know, it's, you know, it's probably good if we focused on our health a little. Seems logical. Right. And so we both focused on that. And I ended up losing a lot of weight. Um, and I was like, all right, well, I got to do some activity. And I started just with like short runs. I was like, I can go run anywhere. It makes it easy. It, it was easy to do any time. And then I started getting into longer stuff. And I was like, well, I bet I, I can run a half. Let's Did you have a plan run. for no, how you were going to? You just started not, running. I do not do well with those types. Because I'm, I'm too impatient. And I, I probably uh, don't trust other people's ideas as much as my own. It's, it's So did you just, thing. like, you started with, like, okay, I can do a quarter mile, then a yeah. half mile, then a mile. I started with so that you... run-walk thing where you run for, like, three minutes, walk for a minute, run for three minutes, walk And that for worked? Minute. Yeah, and eventually it turned into, and that's really what you do eventually once you get into the ultra stuff because there's a certain point where you can't keep a constant run unless you're elite, right? Yes. The 100-mile stuff last year, there was plenty of walking in it, um, and the goal is just to finish in a set time and not die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sitting here. Oh, you are, dude. You're not yeah. dead. Yeah, I got the belt buckle to prove it, which is that they don't do the race medals normally at 100-mile. You get yeah. a belt buckle. Yeah. Um, where was it at? Uh, so it was supposed to be in Washington on uh, Snoqualmie Trail, um, but COVID happened, right? And everything breaks when COVID happens. Yep. Um, so they allowed us to do it virtually. And uh, Jason Green puts on this race called the Yeti 100. He does one um, on the East Coast and he does one in the West Coast. And so you're allowed to run it virtually. So uh, when he announced you could do virtually, I decided in three days I was just going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on a Saturday morning, I started and we ran 98 loops in my neighborhood. Um Jeez. in seattle um and uh it was, it was, how yeah, long did that take 22 hours and six minutes and are you able to sleep in there no 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 you don't want to go to sleep look you you go down you're not coming back up so yeah it was 22 hours i had some friends stop by and you know we did this big like in the front yard of our house we have this loop of my street and in the front yard of the house um, people were sitting out in camping chairs six feet apart and then some people did loops with me because it was about a 1.05 mile loop um, and so they, you know, people would come out for loops with me at different times and it was great weather. I didn't even realize I did on the solstice. It was the longest day of the year for sun oh, too. Oh, nice. Um, it was, yeah. I mean, was there any part you thought about quitting? Uh, you know, honestly, uh, it wasn't that terrible of an experience. I was really fortunate because like miles 40 through 70 are the ones where you kind of get the grind in there. And a lot of people showed up then cause it was a good timing for them. I'd started at, I think 7am the day before 
And so like, all right, at that point in time, I'm at like 3 p.m. to like 8 p.m. And it's convenient for people to stop by. So it's fortunate again, like I have been nothing if not lucky to just find random amounts of support to make my life easier. Mm. Um, like it's, it's a super lucky and fortunate thing. I, I run into it. Um, sometimes you feel like you got a horseshoe in your pocket. Yeah, that's incredible, man. It's my, if I don't uh, ask you this question, my wife's going to be upset at me because she sure. is a she just finished her first half marathon. Oh, and, that's awesome. Yeah, she started running like a, about a year ago. So around there, we got, couldn't even go yeah. a quarter mile. And yeah. so whenever I told her some of the little bit of what you had told me in your bio, she was like, make sure you ask him some of these questions. So for the people like my wife out there, or even me, because I'm just now getting into running, mm-hmm. what advice would you give somebody who it's like, man, I can barely run a half mile. Um, and maybe they're not even thinking about a hundred miles like that. That's a totally out of the question. There's no way I could do that, but maybe they were thinking about like a five K and then yeah. eventually a half marathon or maybe even a marathon. What advice looking back now, um, would you give to that person who's listening? Yeah. The two things that matter in my opinion, number one, uh, speed is not important. Like how fast you go doesn't matter. Um, I've ran faster marathons that I'm really proud of timing, and I've ran really slow, long marathons that I, I, I'm not, you know, I don't care anything about the timing, but how fast you get there doesn't matter. The fact that you keep moving does. Um, and, and then the second piece of this is the wall that everyone talks about. Everybody talks about hitting the wall. In marathons, it's famous that you're going to hit the wall between 18 and 21 miles. Oh, wow. That exists in every single distance. Don't let anybody fool you. If it's a 5K, you hit it at mile 2.1 or whatever. It exists in a half marathon at mile 10. It exists in every single one of them. And when you get up to 50 miles, you know, 40-mile wall existed. The 100-miler at mile 70, I was mentally just in a fog. And it happens and you get into a place because, you know, your emotions go up and down rapidly throughout this because you do go through emotional cycles like i've had broken down in tears and i couldn't tell you why in the middle of a run really yeah and then these ultras because and it's like because your your body goes through different things through this and i don't know the science but i can tell you it's happened to me many times where like i'm in a good mood but like emotionally you just like you go through something what do you think that is no idea I, i don't know i think it's at a point where your body feels like it needs to probably set off some like stress alarm or something and then once you push past that it returns to normal. So the body is like, you need to stop. And then you tell your body like, no, I'm you're good. actually okay. Yeah. 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 It's like, it's like, it's an alert system. And that alert system moves as you move through these distances, but it exists everywhere. What's interesting about that is that you said that it changes based off like it, that happens in every race, no matter the distance. So it's like, there's something about whenever our mind knows what the finish line is. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. 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 I mean, cause it's within sight, but it's still pretty far. Right. No matter what that distance is. Yeah, I don't know. To me, it's still there. Maybe I'm alone in the fact that it's still there, but I've found a wall everywhere. It's, yeah, it's there. And I think that's part of the, like, at a certain point, you become uh, more comfortable with embracing the wall and going, I know what this is. And increasing your familiarity with that feeling is a good thing because it's not so intimidating if you have to go over it. Like, climbing a wall the first time is terrible. Second time's not fun. The third time it becomes, you know, you know, it becomes habit. And you're like, okay, well, I've seen this. I know how to react to myself. Be rational. And yeah. then you move on it. How do you know when to pay attention to your body? Like stop and to keep going? Oh, sure. I mean, I don't know if there's, I don't know if I have a great everybody? answer at that. Okay. Some people have different things they care about. Like for me, I could tell when things were starting to break down. Like if my legs were getting in a certain spot, like Maybe there, um, I need to pay really close attention to heart rate for me. I pay yeah. a lot of attention to that. Like, I started doing that. Is it math training, mafetone? Have you heard of that? It's like you take 180 <laughs> and then you minus your age and then you keep your heart rate at that. There's like some sort well, of And you have it. to do it differently for ultras compared to uh, other things. So like when I was doing the 100 mile race, my goal is for my heart rate to never exceed 140 
Yes. Yeah. Um, and never at any point in time during that was I going to exceed 140. And if I did, I had to start walking and I, I, mean, I was going to come to a full stop because um, it's just the, like the level I wanted to stay in that was super comfortable and I wouldn't stress. And, you know, the last bit of it, it was hard for me to get out of the 120s. Um, like I, would, I would struggle to even get to 120 beats per minute. And it's, I don't know why that happens. I don't know things, Jared, about this, if you can't tell. I just kind of did it oh. and, uh, and just had a lot of people that were really it, nice man. to me and make sure I was okay. I love it. So you are uh, living in Nashville, but you've been yeah. coming back in Paragould yeah. a little bit more often. Buying up real estate, is that right? Yeah, like, that's what are so you, fancy what are you, compared yeah, to what, what it you, is. Yeah, what are you actually doing? So part of one of the we chose Nashville is because we wanted to be closer to Paragould. Um, and it's because... Uh, you know, it was like, all right, I want, you know, some, some entrepreneurship side has been super important growing up. I always had some type of side hustle. Um, and for me, it was that I wanted to be, if I was going to invest in an area, it was really important that I wanted to invest in an area I care about. Mm -hmm. I may not live in Paragold full time, but I care deeply about the community mm -hmm. here. Um, and I, I, you know, I looked at different spots. It's like, okay, we can buy some stuff in Nashville, or maybe we can buy something in Paragold, um, or we could buy in some other city. And I was like, well, you know, I'm a lot more connected here. Like I think about, there's a ton of real estate being built in this area, but what mm -hmm. happens to a lot of the older stuff? Yeah. yeah. To, to, you know, Cause people need Usually housing that's affordable. Uh, it gets demolished, but that becomes really expensive. Um, people need affordable places to live. And I was like, well, I can probably figure that out. Um, and so a couple of years ago, I started doing math. And I like my Excel spreadsheets. I'm one of those nerds that sits with a spreadsheet for hours and enjoys himself. Um, and so I, uh, I, I spent some time on that, and then I started looking, and then found some uh, found some realtors here who were super helpful for me um, and, and finding stuff. And yeah, that's why I'm back this weekend too. I have a business partner as well. And then my wife got involved too, and she's like, I like this, and my mom's involved. And it was a way for me to stay really connected with some people that I care about here. Um, but, and also to like try and create something that was good in the area that, you know, could be a small business at the same time. So you're buying up like older buildings or you're just buying yeah, up? So like we're just looking for like duplexes, triplexes, okay. quadplexes, um, anything that's kind of on the market. I've been fortunate that like, uh, Rick and, uh, uh, Brooksy, um, mm -hmm. hardness are, have been super helpful. Um, and just helping me find things. Um, we're not very far in. We started earlier this year, um, and have been, and then we have a few more things we're looking at now too. But it was really just just time to start and get our feet wet because I'm probably going to mess up a million things with this. I'm not afraid of failure um, oh, that's at all, good, man. Um, because yeah. it's and it happens all the time. But I really wanted to find something that was like, okay, this lets me do something independent of what I do at work that flexes a different mental muscle, lets me engage in something that's interesting to me, um, and so. Uh, I haven't done a lot here yet, but our goal is to continue growing it. And this market was super important to me. Pure Gold and Jonesboro, I care about this place. Like, mm -hmm. and I care about the future of it. So if I can invest in this area in some way, I wanted to. I love that, man. And, you know, that's part of the reason I moved back is, you know, when I moved off and maybe kind of like you too, you're just like, there's no, like, okay, I'm, Maybe it wasn't you, but for me, I was like, okay, I don't know if I'll ever go back to Paragould, you know? Mm. And then, but it's just, there's something about it, man. Like, it's like this place raised me, yeah. and I still have a lot of people here that I love. And so it's like, you know, I could have went anywhere and planted a church. And there were many places where we were told you should go and plant a church, but there was something about being able to come back here and invest in our town. And so mm -hmm. like, you know what? I'm like, I want to use my gifts. I want to use my talents. I want to use the resources I do have, whatever that is, limited, you know, but use that to try to make the town better, make the place a better, you know, city to live in. So I love that. That's the same mindset that you seem to have. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I'll ever, I'll ever live in Paragold again, but like I'm going to be deeply connect, connected to the community for as long as I possibly can. I mean, like it's the same thing. Like you think about the future of people here too. It's super important to like showcase the variety of things you can go and do, but also while you do that, still care about where you grew up. Like I was very fortunate to be 
born and raised here. I learned a lot from a lot of really great people here. And I think it's, uh, you go through a stage, I don't know if you did this in college or moving away, where you weren't confident where you grew up or you had like your own, Mm -hmm. like, you know, I guess reservations about it. I can remember moving to Nashville and having a really thick accent compared to most people I knew because there were people from California and New York and people constantly like joked with me about it. And I worked really hard to get rid of it for a while. Yeah. And it's, it's creeping back on me all the time now. And That's I'm fine it. with it now because I'm like, all right, this is, no, this is part of who I am. And I think a, an acceptance and embracing of that's really important and an appreciation. Yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. Now, maybe the last question I'd ask you, and then I know you've got meetings to get on to, but what is, since you've lived in all these different places, um, what is it you appreciate the most about Paragould? Yeah, I mean, there's something that you can't replace about the people here. Like, we're flawed just like any population anywhere else. But um, the embrace you get from people, that it's almost like a decorum of just care for when you meet someone on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something I, I probably could never get fully used to on the West Coast because they do it a little differently than we do. But it's something every time I come home, I'm going to appreciate because if someone sees you, and you know they know you or they don't even know you they want to embrace and give you an opportunity to say hello mm-hmm. and engage and, I, and there's not very many communities i found that are near as welcoming as here yeah um and so i love that about Paragold. like and i like seeing it grow it's i mean it's getting so big like there's yeah. so much more here than what there was when i was a teenager oh, yeah dude totally they can't just cruise up and down 412 every Friday night is the only thing to do. Like, Was that still around whenever you were in high school? Uh, we definitely did it. I can remember everyone still parked in parking lots. Yeah. I, I didn't that often, but I can remember it was still a very big thing that people would go park in a parking lot. And I, I still don't know why we did it. We could have just went and parked at someone's house. Uh, but I can remember that still being a thing where like, oh, you drive down. Oh, there's somebody parked here. You go say, hey. Yeah, I want you to invest in our city by bringing back the strip uh, where people go up and down King's Highway. Can you do that? Can you use some of your like Excel sheets or anything to make I, that happen? You know, I, I I don't think so. I think you're more popular going towards Jonesboro now, right? Like this, yeah. I, they're almost meeting. It's crazy to me is, how much is built in between Perigold and Brooklyn. And then Brooklyn and Jonesboro is basically the same place. Yeah. Yeah, it's happening. So, man, Cody, thanks so much for making yeah. space to come on. It's so good to be able to connect, man. I'm so thankful for, yeah, just uh, where your life is, is gone. I'm so proud of uh, what you're doing and just thankful for how you're investing in our city. So hopefully we can have you back on yeah. again in the near future. Yeah, thanks, Jared. Appreciate your time. Yeah. All right, so that was Cody Brown. He has officially left the building, and there's a lot of uh, good takeaways for me on that one. I was taking notes over here, um, especially around the idea of what makes a good leader Um, demonstrating empathy, empowering others, not being afraid of failure. Lots of good stuff there that I personally want to apply in my own life. Well, hey, as always, thanks so much for listening. If you are not already uh, subscribing to our email, I would encourage you to do that. You can also check us out at our website, paragoldpodcast.com. We're also on all the different social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, find us on Spotify, um, wherever. And so, As always, thanks for listening and until next time.